1: Well, my name is Michael Johnston, and I am a host on the New Books Network. Today, I have Doug Lishartman on the phone with me to discuss his new book, Midnight Basketball, Race, Sports, and Neoliberal Social Policy. Thank you for joining us,
0: Doug. It's a real pleasure. I'm excited to be here.
1: So a little bit of a background on Doug is he earned his Ph.D. in sociology at the University of California, San Diego, Prior to that, he earned a Master's of Arts in Social Sciences at University of Chicago, and he earned his undergraduate from University of Chicago. Today, we're going to be discussing uh, his studies um, on midnight basketball, and he is currently serving as a professor at, uh, in the Department of Sociology at University of Minnesota. Um, Doug, I provided you a little bit of a, uh, I provided the audience a little bit of a background on you. Could you tell me a bit more about yourself?
0: Well, you covered the main biographical basics uh, yeah, I'm here in Minnesota now. I've been here for quite a while. It was my first job out of graduate school, and I did the bulk of the research uh, for the midnight basketball book started once I got located here at Minnesota. The work wasn't all in Minnesota, but it was while i when I was an assistant professor onward uh, that I worked on on that research. Um, so I do a lot of research on sports and race in the United States. I also do work more generally on race, racism, and diversity in the U.S., um, as well as kind of general sociology topics. I'm very involved with some public sociology, public engagement through the Society Pages website. So I blog there once in a while. We host a number of, big, of uh, prominent bloggers uh, around the country on that site, and I try to contribute once in a while um, with some observations about culture, mass media, and especially uh, race and sports.
1: So so what brought – what stemmed your curiosity and led you to do your studies on uh, midnight basketball?
0: So a number of things. i had been actually – when I was still a uh, master's student at the University of Chicago, um, I had some peripheral involvement. With the midnight basketball league there, which was one of the was fir- wasn't the first midnight basketball league, but it was one of the ones that really brought midnight basketball to national pu- prominence because it got a lot of publicity, being in Chicago. I was, I so I was, been, I had been around it when I moved to San Diego for grad school. I worked with a faculty member there, just helping to um, do some research and evaluation around midnight basketball programs um, in the San Diego area. But I didn't really think of it as a research project till I arrived became an assistant professor here at Minnesota um, and it really was kind of reflecting back on the controversies that surrounded midnight basketball in the 1994 crime bill debates. Um, when I got to Minnesota there's a lot of people here that do criminology work, um, criminal justice, law, um, social control kinds of issues and um, they're always kind of asking about sports stuff and we came back to the 94 crime bill debates quite frequently because it turned out that midnight basketball had been this very uh, public debate about midnight basketball and the controversy in the context of of the legislative debates over the crime bill that was a 33 billion dollar bill that's was passed in 94 and still is essentially the kind of the backbone of the cornerstone of American uh, federal criminal justice policy today. So that got me interested in why, what was midnight basketball doing in the middle of national crime policy? Yes. And I, I, I think you uh,
1: sort of started off your book by talking about its early presence in Maryland, not as necessarily a bill, but an initiative that uh, was to uh, bring the community together and, and reduce crime, um, Locally,
0: yeah. the The actual founder, originator of the official, formal midnight basketball concept, was uh, G. Van Standifer, who was who was uh, from Prince George's County. He was a former town manager in Maryland um, who'd retired. Uh, and he kind of was attentive to issues of crime and delinquency in his community, um, especially in the late night hours and especially for, uh, Af- African American, uh, young men. Um, so he set upon this idea in the late 1980s to launch a basketball league, um, to help get guys off the streets during those high crime hours, give them something else to do, um, kind of reorient, um, their activities and priorities. So that was really the first uh, official Midnight Basketball League. Again, I mentioned it it really got prominent. He got some public attention, but it really got prominent then a few years later when the Chicago Housing Authority um, picked up kind of, piggybacked or joined on the idea and launched their own league and several of the housing projects in Chicago um, with Standifer's involvement and blessing it got a lot of attention then um, and attention here both national news but also um, then uh, President George Bush, the first George Bush um, began to become a champion of Midnight Basketball he saw uh, the programs as kind of, as well, actually it was one of his thousand points of light, a kind of new version of public-private initiatives to deal with social problems Especially in urban areas. So, all that brought it a lot of attention. I, I guess I'd say one other thing that's important is that this actually play the, the idea of midnight basketball, while it was kind of a late 1980s, 90s invention, it plays off a long, probably 100 year tradition, uh, at least in American culture, of using sport for social outreach and intervention, especially for young men and a, even more so for young men of color, when we have a long history of thinking about sport as a way of both building character on the one hand, but also uh, preventing delinquency and generating uh, social resilience on the other. So there's been a long history of that. Think back to the YMCA tradition or the playground movements of the 19, early 1900s that were intended to help socialize new immigrants to American culture. Um, there's, so there's a whole, been a whole history of using sport for social intervention. Um, Standifer and his colleagues in the 1980s and 90s kind of put a new twist on it um, and got a lot of attention. to. It. I guess the, the other thing just to mention, the twist, too, was really popular across political lines. So it was a, originally a Republican initiative, uh, but Democrats were pretty on board, too, and, and especially in the context of bipolar um, fights that we know now it's it's never easy to do a bipartisan kind of policy and midnight basketball had pulled that off at least early on
1: it's interesting that you bring it up uh bring up that it was uh, bipartisan and that was an initiative that um took place over the midnight hours similar to the ymca because you also mentioned in your book that it was for ages approximately 16 to 35 but the the time at which it took place wasn't most conducive for that age group
0: yeah, it's a, it's a little tricky. Um I basketball, you know, really was w- the one and the most prominent of a whole bunch of sports-based programs that have kind of proliferated in the last 20-25 years, um, designed to do social intervention for youth, um especially poor disadvantaged youth of color in cities in cities. A lot of those initiatives are uh, probably more high school age um, midnight basketball was always on the upper end of that age range. Um, so the midnight basketball, you think you mentioned it, seven, 17 to 24 was the target age group for an awful lot of the programs around the country that consider themselves official or were considered official midnight basketball programs. So that's, um, for them, probably the late night wasn't such a big deal, though maybe those who are still in the 17, 18, your age range—if they're in high school—that might not have been ideal, but uh, for others, it wasn't as big of that. Would probably wasn't as big of a problem, but that time frame wouldn't have worked for a lot of other sports-based programs um, then and now that target a younger population. Um, I guess I'd say though, for Standifer, that time was important because uh, his sense um, was that the. 10 o'clock to 2 in the morning time frame was when a lot of um, social problems happened, um, kind of like that old saying, nothing good happens after midnight. I think he was a believer in that, and I wanted to create a program that would present an alternative or a counterpoint to, if people are out that late, that they'd maybe be involved in at least uh, more recreational, if not constructive activities
1: and each of these are uh, each of these programs are designed a little bit different uh, a few of the different ones that you mentioned throughout your book are uh, ghetto basketball league midnight madness oakland midnight basketball and uh the midnight basketball in Glenardine, maryland could uh, could you maybe touch on a little bit uh about uh, midnight madness the i think that was a larger basketball league that really turned itself into Uh, maybe even a larger league where they were hoping to recruit new, uh, the Midnight Madness, I believe that was the one that that manifested itself as a much larger, almost hoping that it would be a recruiting base for the NBA and some of the minor leagues.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot of things to unpack there. Um, Let me start with Midnight Madness. That was, you know, in a lot of ways, this is a little bit of a different movement. It was happening at the same time. That was when people use that term in madness," they're really were usually referring to how an NCAA college basketball, a lot of the teams, um, they were allowed to like start their practices at, first day of the season would be like October 31st in the fall, and so they'd have the first practice take place at midnight, you know, the crack of the, or not crack of dawn, but the, the, the strike of the new, new day, the first minutes that they could practice, they'd launch practices, and that turned out to be like a really popular phenomenon on a lot of college campuses, the first practice of the year, and they'd usually do it up pretty big with a lot of hoopla and celebration. Some of those practices even got televised. Um for I talk about that a little bit in the book because that's kind of a uh, basketball based phenomenon at midnight that ha- that is happening at the same time as midnight basketball. Um, but I I usually are try to be dis- distinguish that because that was really kind of oriented towards more consumer sport, high level elite sport like you like you mentioned for colleges kind of play, trying to get into the final 4, uh trying to make it to March Madness and the athletes trying to train for the NBA. That really stands in contrast most of the midnight basketball leagues were not really oriented towards um elite level play Um, not gonna get a lot of publicity in the sense for the games themselves much more about social intervention crime prevention um, risk reduction so in fact you know when George Bush kind of championed midnight basketball he made a point of saying uh, these basketball leagues are about anything but basketball Uh, basketball is just kind of the hook or, or the kind of thing that draws people in. Um, what we're really trying to do here is broader or other kinds of social programming. So that really stood in contrast the midnight basketball concept from the midnight basketball concept that was being championed by, uh, by um, you know colleges and universities at the time. So is it, I hope that's clear. I could talk a little bit more about some of the variations within midnight basketball programs, which are, um, I think, what you were also alluding to. Is that you want me to do that next? <laughs>
1: Sure, we can uh, next go to Ghetto Basketball League. Uh, that was, uh, I believe, that was in uh, Minneapolis. Is that correct,
0: or the Minneapolis area? The official Midnight Basketball Association was created by Standifer um, in the early '90s, and it became kind of an umbrella organization that um, kind of chartered. Official leagues in cities all over the country. Um, it was they, depending on the moment or the time in those early years, maybe forty to fifty cities had official affiliates um, of the Midnight Basketball Program. They had their own kind of special rules um, that local organizations followed. It involved things like you had to have uniformed police officers on site, it had to be at a certain number of hours. It had to be in those late night hours. Um other a few other things were required. At the same time, there was a lot of other basketball programs that were kinda of like copycat or knockoff programs that weren't official affiliates of midnight basketball but utilized a lot of the principles of using sport. Um, to target and recruit young men of color during high crime hours to give them something else constructive to do, an alternative to um, street life or nightlife that was otherwise seen as dangerous. So the Ghetto Basketball Association, that was really, that was kind of the variation that we saw, that i worked with here in Minneapolis. Um this there uh, a couple things I should say about that one is so it started by a couple of um young 20 something African American guys who were really interested in and embedded in the basketball community um, and they kind of ran the basketball side of things, and they ended up partnering with the city of Minneapolis, um, in particular the um, Department of Health and Family Services, who were also who were looking for ways to reach out to young uh, men of color. Um, this was in the aftermath of a kind of spike in homicides and violence in the late 1990s in, in Minneapolis, and the city was looking for how to reach these guys and do some other kind of programming and ended up partnering with the guys who ran this basketball program that was called the Ghetto Basketball Association so this was kind of a classic it was an they adopted some of the principles of midnight basketball, but uh, kind of adapted them to the local kind of conditions here. A partnership, again, between local basketball guys and local city organizers to do a program that was hopefully to, you know, um, crime control and rebuild in the community. One of the variations, I always kind of joke about this. I think there might be, I might have left a line or two of it in the book. Here in Minnesota, um, the Ghetto Basketball Association, uh, hours were like 9 p.m. to 11 uh, p.m. So I always joke that midnight comes early in Minnesota. People go to bed at a little different time. So that was one example. They didn't do exactly like the National Association um, hoped or or tried to dictate, uh, but they did were very attentive to you know basketball in evening hours um they def- definitely had a kind of security or police presence they also tried to do a series of kind of life skills and educational and job fairs um that went along with the basketball league which is some of the steps that the official midnight basketball leagues did and really started to evolve and develop over the years of the programs one of the key themes of my book is that basketball leagues alone don't necessarily do a lot to help change people's lives, uh, much less reduce crime or reduce risk. Um, What really seems to matter for sports programs is all of the non-sports programming that is connected with the basketball league, that's built around it, that works through it. So when I look at different midnight basketball operations, whether they're official or not, but in different settings, what I'm really interested in looking at is the programs that have – non-basketball elements built into them or that use the basketball programming as a way to connect to other social services and resources. So I think you alluded to the Oakland Midnight Basketball program. That was, for me, a real exceptional program uh, because it had a lot of other social services built in and connected to the basketball league itself, which for me is usually typically the kinds of leagues that are the most likely to really make an impact in the lives of the young men who are playing playing the sport.
1: And you mentioned you had some graduate students who also had foot on the ground and, and, and boots in the uh, uh, in, in the environment, and I remember how uh, you wrote about the experience that they had, where oftentimes they were heavily involved because at, at the end of the night they had to determine whether or not they were going to have a referee for the game or a uh, or, or somebody providing the social services and the training at the end of the night, and uh, and when there is little money that's thrown into the initiative, it makes it difficult to to make it work.
0: Yeah, I had a couple of uh good uh, undergrad RAs and graduate RAs that really helped me run the project and you know, we originally wanted to just be there to observe and and um take notes and interview people, but yeah, like you alluded to when like a lot of social programs um that are not necessarily fully funded, uh there was times when some of my guys um had to jump in and, you know, run a scoreboard or Uh, help organize a life skills event or even I don't remember if they had to be a referee or not but sometimes they were asked to do that kind of stuff so it's where the researchers kind of get you know pulled into the site a little more than you might have thought it positive side I mean it really gave us some insights into both the strengths and real challenges of running social programs whether they're sports based or not Um, you know one of the That's one of the themes of the book, actually. One of the chapters, you know, I wrote it, It co-wrote it with uh, one of the guys who was a grad student at the time, Darren Wheelock. He's now a sociology professor at Marquette. Um, but he was there a lot of nights, um you know doing the things you were alluding to, um, but we ended up writing about that and really uh using his experiences um and I was there too sometimes i shouldn't shouldn 't downplay that i wasn 't involved, but using our experiences on the ground uh really kind of opened us up to the real challenges of of running um any kind of program that 's Predicated on intervention and social change in a you know in an environment of um, scarce resources, Um, you just kind of really get your eyes open to that. I think it's especially a challenge in the context of sport programs because there's always a this tension when you're doing sport programs for social outreach when on the one hand you want the sport league to run well but on the other hand you kind of know that if it's going to really change people's lives it's probably not the quality of the play or the competition that matters but the other activities and programs that are around it and what we saw happen and i think it's a typical thing um but the but we definitely saw it on the ground in minnesota was that when push came to shove you didn't have quite enough money left in the program or enough staff, um, uh, it was all they could do often to get the games going, to make sure there's referees there and make sure the score score got kept and that kind of stuff. And what often got put to the wayside didn't get done like we had originally hoped or planned was this, the life skills training or the jobs fairs or the educational um, opportunities um, just because, there wasn't enough people. There wasn't enough money to make that happen. And I think that's a constant challenge with any sports program that wants to make a difference in the world is how to run the sports program at a high level, but also how to do all the other social intervention as well. And one of the real things is it's not a lot of people have the skills to do both of those. You know, the city wanted to run a basketball program because they thought it could reach – their target audience, but they didn't have anybody on staff who knew a lot about basketball or had connections with referees, so they worked with the guys who had created the ghetto basketball league. Those guys were good at the basketball side, but then it was always a challenge to balance the basketball skills with the social services that um, also needed to be put in place if the program was to make good on its larger non-sports kind of aims and, and goals.
1: Excellent, and uh, so it's it's just interesting how each of the each of the different programs have a little bit of their own niche and their own approach to uh, to putting on midnight basketball. Uh, one of the interesting pieces that I found was that uh, police were on um, odd sight, almost as if they were um, considered criminals before they may have even had a uh, uh, had any sort of a conviction.
0: That's yeah, so that's one of the things built in from the beginning um with this midnight basketball concept, and I think what really differentiated it from other versions of sports and social intervention earlier in the century or throughout the history that this kind of made it more about crime and crime control um that was uh besides the late night, that was one of the things Stanifer insisted on was the presence of police um and I understand where he was coming from. That was part of why the Republican um, constituents and, and congressmen were so supportive of midnight basketball. Cause it was kind of taking sports, which often have a kind of a liberal cast, like building character, providing resources um, and putting a little more of a conservative spin on it, a little more about control and surveillance and discipline and the presence of police up the ante on that. Um, but, You're starting to allude to one of the other big themes of the book is how Midnight Basketball, um, in kind of creating this emphasis on crime control and the presence of police, also kind of played off of, and in my view, kind of reinforced images of black men as already a threat, already a, uh, a, a criminal presence potential um, cr- criminals in the making, as it were. Um, and and this, to me, starts to be not only a political thing, but a racial thing. And I think um, Midnight Basketball really, even though people often didn't talk about it um, in, ra- in as a program for African-American men or as a race program at all, it really was subtly but very deliberately targeted to African-American men and, and playing off of stereotypes, actually two sets of stereotypes in the culture at the time, that on the one hand, African-American men were highly prone to crime, they were su- and, and on the other hand, that they were superstar athletes. In fact, the innovation of Midnight Basketball was to take the worst the best stereotypes about African-American men as superstar athletes and use those as the solution to the worst stereotypes that they were super predator criminals. Uh, But that starts to get us into um, this theme for me about why the programs were so politically controversial, um, because they were deeply racially coded and racially charged.
1: So are any of these uh, programs alive and well today? Have you continued to explore midnight basketball uh, in your current research?
0: Um, it's not something I'm currently researching on, but I, I stay in touch with some of the people who ran certainly the local programs and, and around the country I'll I'll have calls once in a while. Um, there are still some official midnight basketball programs out there, not as many as there were Um, um and i think the ones that have been more successful are those that have kind of found ways to connect the basketball program with a lot of other social services and resources in a community i think of programs like in richmond uh uh richmond i think maryland or and and or virginia and and still the one in san francisco those are ones that have have been around for a long time but what there's a lot of um is a lot of sports based programs that are designed for social for purposes of intervention and control um, that kind of play off of the midnight basketball model and those have really proliferated in the 20 years since I started uh, doing the research um, on this. The big changes I would say from when midnight basketball started in the 90s and what we'd be looking at today. Um, one of the big changes is it really these programs really target younger younger um, populations um, so it's much more likely to be high school age or even adolescent kids a second thing is they typically don't use just basketball there's a whole range of sports that are used um, that are usually thought to appeal to different populations um, um, programs that uh, for different immigrant ethnic uh, racial minority communities as well as for uh, girls and women as well as men and then the last other big development that I've seen with these programs, the sport-based initiatives for intervention, um, is they really have um, become far more of a democratic or liberal um, approach. Um, and some and lost a lot of the support that the that the programs originally had from the more conservative side of the aisle, and that happened especially after the ninety four crime bill debates. Um, I haven't talked about that so much. It's actually a couple chapters in the book, but in ninety four, um, basically uh, the a right wing of the Republican Party. Um, Turned and attacked midnight basketball programs, which by then had been championed not only by Bush but by Clinton, and began to characterize those programs as kind of everything that was wrong with liberal crime policy, um, giving kind of giving goodies and games to communities that were already prone to crime and to uh, to young men on the streets who were already uh, delinquent and problematic. So they really changed the debate and the tune, not only about crime control generally, but about midnight basketball and sports specifically, where it was a lot harder. And, And they also became very critical that these programs would work at all. Um, they thought they weren't extensive enough. They didn't get guys off the street enough. Um, and in some cases that they actually allowed delinquent or prone to delinquent young men to congregate and, and create uh, even gangs and problematic groups um just by virtue of the basketball. So that really changed um, the character for Midnight Basketball and for all kinds of sports-based programs uh, where it made it much more um, of a more traditional, liberal kind of outreach and and orientation. So a little change on that um, a couple years ago in the 20th anniversary where a few Republicans, again, were kind of looking back at sports-based programming in cities. But still on the whole to me, uh, most of those sports programs um, are oriented and tend to be supported more by uh, liberal politicians and leaders than conservative ones.
1: And I'm also seeing a lot more programs that are supported by uh, the industry than by the uh, local communities. The first thing that I think of is 40 for 40 with the NFL, and uh, but those are for a younger population overall, so a bit of a different design.
0: Absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, definitely that fits the younger I'd say it's it's also a little more recreational or sport-oriented. Um, a lot of those programs are – well, first of all, they're often run by companies more as kind of advertising or publicity vehicles than they are for actually – um, reaching large, large numbers of people, of young people. But for sure, even when they are trying to reach the masses, um, it's usually more with a sport emphasis. Remember what was unique about Midnight Basketball and the sport is intervention programs is that they weren't trying to just do a sports program. They are trying to do a sports program that actually had all these social... Um, social dimensions. There was social services and, you know, whether it's education and employment and life skills. Um, and to me, when I look at some of the kind of corporate versions of youth space sports programs that are uh, being kind of prominent, um, I think they don't usually have that rich social texture, fabric, and goals um, that the kind of core... Of the programs in the 90s that I, I found so fascinating, really were committed to.
1: So, what do you think the success rate is on these? It's difficult to measure, I know, particularly when uh, there is no specific crime that or or person you can follow throughout their life if they've not been uh, ever if they've never been arrested. But what did you find in terms of success rate?
0: Well. Um, as you know from the later couple of chapters, uh, my attempts in working with my students and colleagues on this, we really weren't able to come up with good assessments, at least for the programs we did in the Twin Cities um, where we had really locked in, mainly because the programs didn't really get delivered in the way we, would, we hoped, and so they didn't have that impact. Um, I think it's also, so I don't have a good answer to what's the success rates. I will say when programs are successful, in terms of preventing delinquents, helping to change reorient people's lives, um, it's typically not just about the basketball league it's about all the other resources and programs that um, are available made available that, that that basketball participants find when it's um, through basketball but but in terms of other social services. Um, the study that I think is probably the Closest to that, I did a study with a guy, Brooks Depro, an economist, where we looked at um, cities' um, crime rates in the 1990s and compared cities that had midnight basketball programs with those that didn't. And we did find a couple percentage points drop controlling for other things in crime rates in the cities that had the Midnight Basketball programs, but in analyzing it more carefully we we ended up arguing that it wasn't really because of the Midnight Basketball programs themselves, but it was because the Midnight Basketball programs were in cities that had a lot um, of social services and crime um, prevention initiatives in place. So Midnight Basketball was really just part of a larger package of of um, programming that help to uh, decrease crime rates, and the flip side of that is provide opportunities uh, for more meaningful engagement for uh, young men in those communities. But again, it's not really like men have basketball is a magic bullet. It's part of a much larger initiative of solutions. And this is one of the end themes is I think sports in general aren't a magic bullet or a solution for, or a Band-Aid for, for any kind of social policy. It's making change and, and doing real meaningful social intervention is always really expensive and intensive. It requires a lot, and sports is only a little part of that. Um, to think anything different than that is to either overestimate the power of sports or underestimate the real challenges of social change in our urban communities.
1: And one of the things, one of the themes that I'm um, looking a lot at uh, recently is this community justice theme of getting everybody within the community involved in uh, basketball may be one way in which uh, a conduit to bring people together to integrate the community as one. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, the kind of, it's a little more of the intangibles, um, and I'd, I'd say part of it. I mean, if you if you're using the language of integration in terms of like across racial lines, I think that can happen. Um, but I would say even more so, just kind of b- building strong communities, community networks, and ties, whether they're across racial lines or within within uh, more homogeneous racial communities. Um, to me, sports-based programs. Um, And sports in general um, can help to bring folks together, can provide kind of a context for social interaction that's pleasurable, that's constructive, that doesn't have a lot of um, heated... Um, overtones to it, um, in terms of other resources, so yeah, I think sports is is, is one of those things and and that 's I probably should have said i think that 's another part when we looked at the cities that had midnight basketball. It was both a lot of social programs but also more community awareness and involvement and I do think midnight basketball kind of as a symbolic vehicle, almost like an advertising vehicle, was a way for city leaders to send message to uh, send a message to local communities, especially black communities that uh, we We value your involvement. we want to support activities that are meaningful um pleasurable in your in your neighborhoods um not just think of it as think of these neighborhoods or communities as social problems as crime control areas, but to try to do things that are a little more positively oriented and can help rebuild community and community police connections um and just all kinds of networks and you know we 're as sociologist i 'm kind of always. Um, On the side of more social capital and connections we can have, the stronger the cohesion in our communities will be and we'll have better communities for it. And I think sports contributes to that, absolutely.
1: And seeing everybody in a positive light, you know, at first I thought police on site, oh my goodness, they're already um – pointing fingers as if they, the players are criminals, but seeing police uh, uh, as uh, as positive people who are there to create crime control instead of seeing them as always out to get somebody may not be such a bad thing.
0: That's right. I, I think the devil's in the detail on that. It's always how exactly do the, are is, are the police invited to be involved and how do those relationships get fostered. Um, but I think there's a tr- there are tremendous opportunities there to have um, police presence as a mode of community engagement and involvement. Um, and if that happens, that's fabulous. But, you know, you also have to be careful that it's not just a matter of surveillance or control or, or a more traditional kind of um, hardcore tactic. So that's I think that's where, you know, we were alluding earlier to some of the so- local variations. Um, I think there's probably probably a lot more variations on that that i'd even know about in terms of all the different cities that had the program and the different ways in which police or other security would have been involved but hopefully uh if they didn't then that as we think about these programs in the future that it can be a site for that kind of positive uh community connections um that you're alluding to
1: well um we're about out of time here but one last question Uh, what are you working on now what's your new focus
0: (laughs) oh that's great uh So I'm not working on the midnight basketball stuff so much right now, though I'm talking about it a lot with the book out. Uh, I guess three big projects – one is I'm working on a book about midnight. Uh, excuse me, about race and sports in America, I'm trying to write a short but big idea book that kind of gives an overview of the ways that sport can contribute to racial progress and then some of the reasons why it's a little harder for that to happen than we often think. I've also got another project. It, this one is kind of an outgrowth. We call it the Kids Project, but we're really looking at the um, ways that organized out-of-school activities, how many of which are sports, how they impact um, young people's lives and how that varies across class and race lines in the United States. And then the third thing I'm doing, i trying to study this new wave of athlete activism um, and consciousness that's emerged in the last few years, highlighted this fall, especially by the NFL uh, players who kneel during the national anthem. So this is kind of picks off from my first picks up from my first book, which is about the 1968 Black Olympic protest movement. Um, this is what we've seen in the last few years is the first time since the 1960s where there's really been this wave of consciousness and activism among um, athletes especially african-american athletes so i'm trying to figure out what's going on with that and put that in some historical context so those are the three things a big book on race and sport a new project on kids activities and their impact on race and class and then this uh, new project on activism and in in the athletic arena in america today
1: are you looking at the professional level and the collegiate level or a little bit of both
0: Fabulous question. I'm I'm doing some of both. I mean, you know, to me one of the uh most amazing moments of this activism was 2015 when the Missouri Tigers football team threatened to boycott um over racial issues on the campus there. It was an amazing moment. Um so we've seen this in colleges. I'm actually really interested even at Division 3 level sports or even high school sports uh young people who've taken a knee or tried to use their involvement in athletics as a way to uh, contribute to or call, contribute to the movement about racial injustice or contribute to understandings about race. So I'm interested in a whole range of um, athletes who are trying to use their prominence as athletes to call attention to broader social issues. Um, in fact, I think that's one of the things that's unique right now is just how broadly diffuse Um, This consciousness is Among this generation of athletes I I think that is a fairly Unprecedented thing that we're in the middle of Right now that has impacts not only For um, American social Issues but even maybe how we think about um, Sports and athletics In the relationship to race Politics and social change
1: Oh and it's widespread it's not just Football as we often see on Sunday But at the collegiate level uh, There's a young lady in Iowa Who uh, Who went to potentially still goes to uh Buena Vista University uh in storm Lake and she was a, she's a cheerleader was a cheerleader and uh, she took a knee and she's no longer on the team but it's interesting how it's so diverse in terms of sport but also across the genders
0: that's a great point you know I think yeah. Uh, women athletes, women's soccer, the WNBA, but you're talking about something I th- find fascinating. at the more kind of uh, different levels, lower levels of sport. Um, you see some of this even in high schools. I, I think that's just an amazing phenomenon that we're witnessing right now. I think you're seeing backlash from some circles. It sounds like this woman ex- might have experienced some of that. Others, I think, are kind of, um, gratified when there's people that push back because it can open up opportunities for them to talk about social issues, racism, police brutality, that are conversations that are otherwise, uh, really difficult, uh, to launch, um in our society and culture so yeah that's what i'm trying to track it's kind of beginning of a project because it's hard to write about something right as it's unfolding um you usually need time to think about that i i will say i have tried to do some of that on the website that i run the society pages um i have a little blog Um, posts there and over the last year or two I've done um, several different entries that kind of try to extrapolate out reflect on some of the kinds of um, episodes and and events that we're seeing Um, you know hopefully I can pull that into some kind of an article or two if not a book Uh, but it's it's always hard when you're kind of right in the middle of, of the moment and it's really hard to kind of gauge exactly how this will continue to grow or what directions it'll take
1: and one of the things at the professional level, I hope, but they have a huge impact on, uh, in terms of socializing young people and co- the college students started, I think it started to unravel there when they started to see it on live television and seeing it as a, uh, as a imminent thing that needed to be uh, taken care of and recognized even at the collegiate level. But uh, I'm hoping that it isn't managers that are that are sort of guiding the players to that it's self-led.
0: I think it's been pretty self-led in the U.S. If anything, managers, owners, coaches have been fairly hesitant, if even resistant, to athletes, uh, you know, making gestures, making statements, demonstrating. Though I will say one of the amazing things about the fall in the NFL was the moment um, after President uh, Trump had attacked some of the players when white teammates, owners – and coaches kind of, if they didn't take a knee, they at least really showed sympathy and support for their African-American teammates and issue and their issues. And that was a pretty amazing thing. But uh, to answer your main question, I think this isn't really uh, driven or controlled by ownership or management. I think it really has been much more of a grassroots thing on the part of athletes themselves, uh, taking responsibility, exercising their rights as citizens, as, as, as socially aware Beings, members of society, using their prominence, their platform as athletes, um, that's a pretty amazing thing. Um, whether it's the uh, football players or uh, women on college cheerleading teams, um, or like NBA, uh, or NBA players um, who aren't necessarily so political, but they do feel a commitment to speak out to social issues that either they directly experienced or members of their community have. And for me, this is very important in terms of really understanding um, the. Place of sports in our society, in our social issues, and not thinking it's some se- separate, special, or sacred space, but it's it's part of society, and it's incumbent on us to both realize that and then listen to those who are in the middle of those worlds and and um, trying to call our attention to those issues. Excellent.
1: Well, thank you for doing that research. And uh, how are you? Uh, what approach are you going to take in terms of method? Is it going to be uh, largely interviews, or what's your plan?
0: Well, right now what I'm mostly working on is trying to interpret both the athlete statements as well as the kind of backlash or opposition they've experienced, trying to interpret that in the context of the lessons that I learned from the 1968 Olympic protest movement. Um, so it's trying to put some historical context on what we're experiencing right now. You know, I wrote a whole book on the 68 moment that, um, Kind of has a lot of the parallels or precursors to what's happening today, uh, but also can help us highlight what some of the unprecedented things. Um so the, that's why to me, the involvement of the white players, coaches, and owners that was a big thing, a big unprecedented thing. The extent to which our president has spoken out and in such kind of uh extreme, colorful, even vulgar language that's pretty unprecedented um and so it'll, but I'm also going to be I'm paying a lot of attention to not only the protests themselves now but to the reception to the response. Uh, to the backlash, um, I think i'm also, I'm really interested in how mainstream America and how white America understands these social issues, understands these athletes, understands sport um, and so that's a little bit more of a big picture kind of cultural analysis um, where I'm really looking at at media commentary, media coverage, and seeing what that reveals about our understandings of issues of race, of the um, voices of black athletes and how sport fits in society.
1: You're in an information age, so I'm sure you're being uh, over inundated with information
0: from all of these different yeah, yeah. sources. Sure. So. Yeah, I'm even going to do a little talk at the Midwest Sociology Meetings coming up in March about how I've gotten pulled in um, this fall in particular. I did so many different interviews and media requests um, where you know I'm trying to act like the analyst, but clearly expected to play a kind of a role in interpreting and 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 helping to filter all the events as they unfolded week by week Uh, this fall was one of my busiest it was good for my business a lot of calls about that Um, and I'm trying to reflect then too on the place of you know a crazy sports scholar like myself and how we get pulled into these social dynamics as well and trying not to go native as they would say Yeah, or or trying to figure out what that means when you're actually part of the story as well as uh, an analyst of it.